0: Okay, hello everybody. Welcome to the show. I have something personal to share before we begin. Back when I was 8 or 9 years old, I was watching a football game, and it was the first time that I ever watched a football game as an NFL fan, where I was actually trying to become engrossed in what it's like to be a football fanatic. Yeah, of course I had seen football on the TV. I grew up in the 90s. The Dallas Cowboys used to beat the crap out of the Buffalo Bills, but I wasn't really an NFL fan. It's just something that had been in the background. The first game that I had watched where I was truly part of the NFL fanatic community was the Giants versus the Redskins. I guess we call them the Washington football team now, but they were the Redskins at the time, and there was a kickoff, and this one player, named David Patton caught the ball, and then he returned it. It must have been 90 yards all the way for the touchdown. And I was like, that guy, David Patton, he's cool. David Patton passed away last week at the age of 47 in a motorcycle accident, and I just wanted to say rest in peace to him. He went on to play with other NFL teams after the Giants, including the New England Patriots, where he would Win three Super Bowls with them. So, rest in peace to David Patton. And now, to get into today's topic, it is Tuesday, so we're going to be talking about True Crime Talk Radio. However, this one is going to have something a little bit different at the end. First, I'm going to be discussing an article that had been written in the Washington Monthly by Michael O'Hare. Michael O'Hare is a suspect in the Zodiac Killer mystery. And yesterday on the channel, I did a book discussion on Zodiac Killer Solve by Ray Grant. And for the first time, I had the opportunity to get a response from a Zodiac Killer suspect. I said in that episode that one time I had previously tried to contact a Zodiac Killer suspect and was unsuccessful. But I had written to Michael O'Hare, and he had responded to me, and we exchanged some messages over last weekend. And the first one that he sent to me was just a blank message with a PDF copy of his article from the Washington Monthly called Confessions of a Non Serial Killer. The Zodiac Killer operated in nineteen sixty eight and sixty nine. But the crimes that Michael O'Hare has been accused of, have been accused of, go back as far as nineteen sixty six and they continue up to nineteen eighty one. Nineteen sixty six was the murder of Sherry Joe Bates, and nineteen eighty one was the murder of Joan Webster. So if I'm going to do a show on how Michael O'Hare could be the Zodiac Killer, it's only fitting that I will respond to this article that he has written, which he provided me with. So let's look at Confessions of a Non-Serial Killer by Michael Henry O'Hare. Sometime in the early 1980s, when I lived in Cambridge, Massachusetts, I received a postcard with a name and a return address I didn't recognize. Bearing a cryptic image on the back every few weeks after that, I received another card. There was one with holes punched in, one with symbols, and one that resembled the circle with the crosshairs, and one was a picture of a man in sunglasses and a hooded sweatshirt, and one with a string of binary digits. The return addresses and postmarks kept changing, assuming a friend from college was trying to get me to play some sort of puzzle game and recreation for which I had no patience. I threw them in the drawer, a little guilty that he was going to all this trouble, Michael O'Hare would then go on to learn that the mail was not coming from a college friend, but it was from somebody named Gareth Penn. The mail was from an amateur sleuth in California named Gareth Penn, who was trying for some time to interest the police in the idea that I was the Zodiac Killer. Perhaps he was trying to alarm me into confessing or doing something incriminating. Who knows? Even to this day, I know little about the man beyond the odd detail I've picked up here and there. Just like the fact that he is a librarian and surveyor by trade, that he has, or had, a wonderful Jesus beard. Well, I guess that's true. That he is a member of Mensa. About the details of Penn's theory, I know next to nothing curious readers could find in Penn's two self-published books on the subject. Now, as I understand, those books are Time 17 and The Second Power. Well, let's throw in somewhat of an interjection. While I'm not the biggest Gareth Penn expert in the world, I have read his book, Time 17, as well as The Second Power. I have book discussions about both of them here on this channel. And Gareth Penn's theory is that the Zodiac Killer was someone who had a very high understanding of mathematics and a very high understanding of angles. Somebody like an architecture graduate, someone who would have had graduate-level education in either the maths or sciences, something like architecture. And other people, though, I don't mean to go off on a tangent, but other people have proposed an alternative to Gareth Penn saying, all right, we completely understand you, we follow everything you're saying, but what about a pilot or a sailor? I just wanted to throw that in someone who might also have intense familiarity with some of these things. And if you read Time 17 by Gareth Penn, he talks about how All sorts of things in the Zodiac Killer mystery, including the murder of Sherry Jo Bates and the murder of Joan Webster, could be filled with mathematical signatures, Morse code and binary, and his suspect is Michael O'Hare. And here's a small segment that I read off yesterday, but I'll say it again because I think it's important. I don't want to be cute about the murders, which not only left the victims grieving in their wake, as well as relatives, but also frightened a lot of people and frustrated the California and Massachusetts law enforcement. So for the record, I am not the Zodiac Killer. I had absolutely nothing to do with these or any other murders. As far as I know, I wasn't even in California when any of them happened. Similarly, I had nothing to do with the death of Joan Webster, a Boston College student whose murder Penn also tried to pin on me. A note to Zodiac hobbyists and pen aficionados please don't go through parsing, please don't bother parsing the foregoing for cleverly worded non denials and numerological incriminating clues. If you don't like my choice of words, feel free to make up other language that you would take as a flat, comprehensive, and unqualified denial. Assume that I said that. What follows will tell you nothing about the Zodiac killer or Joan Webster. It is a personal history of being struck by a low voltage lightning bolt out of a clear sky. The decades since Gareth Penn fixed his sights on me have not been a living hell as much as that would spice up the story. They have been an ordinary life punctuated by one or another flurry or fuss from Penn, sometimes involving pages or numbers, for example the data pages from my Ph.D. thesis, or this or that sequence is picked out, circled, and decoded into words that somehow fit Penn's model of the crimes." as i understand it Penn first decided that i was the culprit after analyzing letters that had been sent to the san francisco chronicle and at this point i would like to throw in another interjection gareth Penn has come under a lot of scrutiny because michael o'hare is his zodiac suspect and someone wrote out um, a rather loud and boisterous rebuttal to Gareth Penn, saying that Gareth Penn has talked about this guy Michael O'Hare for 30 years, trying to blame the Zodiac murders as well as the Bates murder and the murder of Joan Webster on Michael O'Hare, yet he can't even place O'Hare in the state of California on said dates. Well, I would just like to read something else that Michael O'Hare has written in his article. Over the years, I've gotten the occasional whiff of how Penn was working hard on his project, and the kind of evidence he had collected. For instance, I spent a summer in San Francisco in 1969, I think, working at Arthur D. Little Incorporated, a study of expanding the San Diego airport. This emerged from Penn's analysis as, have been a, ha, as of having been a ski condominium development in Lake Tahoe, a project that I had nothing to do with. How it connects to the crimes, I have no idea. Well, Lake Tahoe, of course, is the area where Donna Lass was abducted in September of 1970. And we have just passed the anniversary of the disappearance of Donna Lass. And I say abducted, but she disappeared. I should leave it at that because there's a high possibility that Donna Lass was murdered very close to the point of when she disappeared. And um, that, I believe, is the connection to Lake Tahoe. How it connects to the crimes, I have no idea. Later, he predicted that Joan Webster's body would be found at a specific location in the Boston suburbs, and I believe cruelly misled her poor parents for some months. She was later found many miles away. I've talked a lot about the murder of Joan Webster on this channel, and Eve Carson, who was Joan Webster's sister-in-law and a researcher in the case, authored a book called Mommy's a Mole, Whale of a Tale, about the Joan Webster murder, as well as talking about the CIA, as I re- As I said, she was Joan Webster's sister-in-law, so she is very well acquainted with all of the people in the Webster family, many of whom have passed away. And she actually proposed that the Webster family completely played Gareth Penn, that yes, he was trying to do this type of Zodiac Killer connection and angle, and that they simply just deceived him, because she believes that the Webster family had a dark secret. But um, that is available in some other episodes. To get back to Michael O'Hare's writing... And at another point, he thought that I had buried Joan Webster on a property that I owned in Vermont. Once, when I was there tending to the garden, I looked up and saw a small plane flying overhead. An aerial photo of the house later appeared in my mailbox back in Brookline without a comment. I think it was sent by Pan. Most of the mail I believe I'm getting from him is in unmarked envelopes or signed by various people named Mike. Uh, That's kind of weird. I think you guys can get the idea. I think you understand what Michael O'Hare is trying to say. He didn't commit the murders. He wasn't the Zodiac Killer. He didn't have anything to do with the crimes. He doesn't know Gareth Penn. He doesn't know anything about Gareth Penn. He doesn't want to know Gareth Penn. This guy thinks he was the Zodiac Killer, so he's sending him messages and saying that he's keeping an eye on him, but he's never bothered to look into Gareth Penn because Michael O'Hare knows the truth. All right? I think that that is O'Hare's side of the story. But... The fact of the matter is, I didn't contact Michael O'Hare because I wanted to hear about Gareth Penn. As I said, I've talked about Gareth Penn in my book discussions on Time 17, as well as The Second Power. I also have a, an episode called Michael O'Hare and the Murder of Joan Webster, where I get into Gareth Penn's material a lot. I contacted Michael O'Hare because I was doing a book discussion on Zodiac Killer Solved by Ray Grant. And perhaps it's fair to say that Ray Grant's take on the subject was an expansion of the book Time 17, which actually lists both Gareth Penn and Michael O'Hare as active participants in the Zodiac Killer mystery, as well as two other people, Hugh Penn, Gareth's father, and Berta Margulies, Michael O'Hare's mother. And I really wanted to know, what is his response to that? He even sent me this um, article here, which I had read part of that had been posted on ZodiacCiphers.com. so I wasn't very impressed with this. And obviously he didn't want to talk to me. He's just trying to get me to leave him alone. He thinks if he ignores me, that might hype me up even more. So he just wanted to say, read this article. It'll tell you everything that you want to know. And I'm like, no, wait, please. Can you make a comment about Ray Grant's Zodiac Killer solve this more expansive version of the theory that incorporates you into the Zodiac Killer mystery? and what um he had responded by saying was i know nothing about ray grant and have nothing to add about the whole meshagus beyond what i put in the article good luck with your show i appreciate the good luck michael o'hare now ray grant author of zodiac killer solve responded by saying and just via in the comment section via YouTube, by saying, I think I've said this a million times already, Michael O'Hare can't correctly claim that he doesn't know who I am since I send copies of my book, The Zodiac Murders Solved, to all 90 faculty members of the John F. Kennedy School at Harvard. Absolutely, and, um, I said this in my messages as well. I know you know who Ray Grant is because I've read about these actions before, and, um, where o'hare was a lecturer in public policy in november nineteen ninety six harvard administrators also received copies of the book and that's when o'hare was employed at harvard and his employment came to an end the following fall he was working at the goldman school at cal berkeley i suspect what happened is the harvard gave o'hare an ultimatum sue ray grant so that this issue can be cleared up or leave and o'hare chose to leave it is ridiculous to say that o'hare didn't suffer as a result of this he had to sell his house in brookline and buy a new one in berkeley heights which he then sold for four years later. His wife, who worked for the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, had to get a new job. His two daughters had to say goodbye to their school, and his mother, who lived with him in the house on Abbotsford Road, had to move out. But but well, I'm sure that, um, or I, I guess I would say I'm not the biggest believer in these actions, I'm not quite certain that Ray Grant's actions in mailing the copies of these books to people was what I would have done in that situation. That Let's put that point aside. I definitely think Michael O'Hare knows who Ray Grant is, and he's familiar with the claims and the accusations. Yes, he's trying to dismiss them, but and he's trying to get me to... Stop sending him emails, which he was successful and I can tell that he didn't want to talk about it, and O'Hare has never been convicted for any of these crimes, not the Bates murder, not the canonical Zodiac crimes, or the Webster murder, or any of the other accusations. I mean, unsolved cases, all of them. No one has ever been convicted in the crimes that I just listed off. But I absolutely think that he was doing something a little bit deceptive there. So Ray Grant continued by saying, As to Michael O'Hare not knowing who I am, here's a link to the original version of Michael Butterfield's The Crackpot Files. Read that second paragraph, which apparently O'Hare demanded to be retracted from, Butterfield's article in a phone call he placed in that year, 1999. O'Hare brings up me, referring to Ray Grant, out of the blue, to complain about my accusation of him, having clearly read my book, since he knows it's similar to Penn's. And of course, absolutely, I know Michael O'Hare is familiar with Ray Grant because of not only the thing about the mailing of the books, a story of which I've heard before, I believe Ray Grant also did something about distributing a pamphlet. Maybe he can correct me on those details, and that was done in the early 90s. Yes, I mean, I know that someone is um just trying to get rid of these accusations, but does that make him guilty of murder? Um, I'll let you guys be the judge. And what do you think about Michael O'Hare as a Zodiac killer suspect? And you can also weigh in on something about, about how people interpret Gareth Penn and Ray Grant's works. Because Ray Grant even went a step further than Gareth Penn, as he does many times, by saying not only was this a criminal masterpiece filled with mathematical signatures, a masterpiece in the mind of the perpetrator, or perpetrators plural, definitely it's a horrible and sickening thing to do, but Ray Grant added the line that, It could also be a sinister form of conceptual art. Yes, sinister, meaning evil, bad, wrong, these types of actions should not have happened. So I think that we can, um, I I think there's room for discussion in that. Because one guy told me clearly, and I repeat this line very frequently because I think it's important. It's that the thing with Gareth Penn is, that I was taking him too literally. All these things about the mathematical signatures and the binary and the Morse code, all these clues that are found in Zodiac correspondences, or even what Michael O'Hare said, Gareth Penn's going through the data pages of his PhD thesis and underlining words and so on. Is there a mathematical signature in this? He's like, you're taking Gareth Penn too literally. What he wanted to do was highlight something in the Zodiac Killer mystery, that was absolutely um, overlooked, or people weren't talking about it frequently enough, and that is that the architect of the Zodiac crimes, or the perpetrator himself, the Zodiac, whoever he is, or she, if we're including a woman like Ray Grant's theory does, then that person had a very high understanding of mathematics, that person was most likely educated at the graduate level, and that mathematical signatures were implemented and and printed, and hidden in the Zodiac killer crimes. That's the real thesis of Gareth Penn's Time Seventeen. And I would love, you know, somebody like Ray Grant, or even if Gareth Penn wants to weigh in on this himself. And you know, it's only karma what happened to Gareth Penn. I mean, firstly, he writes this book about some guy named Michael H O H, Michael Henry O'Hare, because of um H O H's, like water, right? H two O, two H's and one O. Michael H two O. Okay, so he found the suspect that matches up with a lot of things in his theory, and he's writing the book Time 17, he's mailing in all these cards, you heard what Michael O'Hare is saying, maybe there's even a plane flying over his house and just sending a photo of the house to, to Michael O'Hare, if Gareth Penn's doing things like that. Firstly, Ray Grant would go on to accuse Gareth Penn of being an active participant in the Zodiac Killer mystery. Secondly... Joe from the Zodiac Killer Insights series has done numerous videos on how he believes that Gareth Penn was the Zodiac Killer and all the things that he compiled, and Joe's theory incorporates the murder of Sherry Joe Bates as well as the 1967 murder of Nikki Benedict, which occurred on May 1st of that year. So, um, and you can even hear Joe's phone call to Gareth Penn that's been recorded on YouTube on his channel, the Zodiac Killer Insights series. Karma came around to bite Gareth Penn in the ass. But what do you think about either one of those guys is a zodiacular subject, Mike O'Hare or Gareth Penn? You could weigh in in the comments section down below. Now for something completely different, well, other than the concept of biting somebody in the ass, I got recommended this video by YouTube from an individual named Bob Sutton. He was talking about how to deal with jerks in the workplace work jerks, jerks at work, and I was like, absolutely, I I, I always want to know more about this, because we talk about true crime, because we want to learn about how people function, and while this isn't extremely true crime related, even though it could be, depending on the nature of the workplace jerk, what were some of the points that were discussed in this video, and I also learned from that that this was something from uh, Bob Sutton's book tour, He was promoting one of his uh, new books that had come out. And by the way, he uh, publishes his writings under the name Robert I. Sutton. This was the Asshole Survival Guide, How to Deal with People Who Treat You Like Dirt. Yeah, definitely gets your attention. And um, I think a lot of people just want to know, how do you deal with people who are nasty? But the video that I was watching was specifically about workplace jerks. And the first point that Robert Sutton brought up was that... If you have someone who isn't very nice to you at work, try to get them to do favors for you, because then they're going to think, if they're doing a favor for this person, well, they must not be so bad if you can get them into that mindset. And while he has a PhD and I don't, and while he is an expert on this and I'm not, personal experience has absolutely shown me that I need to disagree with that statement. Try to get somebody to do favors for you, and then they will like you. Um, Not quite, because that often does not end well, or people are often going to be very disagreeable in that situation. But another point, though, that I think um, was very interesting in this book was that the people who tell you when you've done something inappropriate are the ones that you should align yourself with, or be friends with, or cozy up to, whatever um, word you would like to choose. What did Michael O'Hare say? Choose something flat and non-controversial or something. But those are the type of people that you want to be around, people who tell you when you've done something inappropriate. And I was also very surprised by this, and I'm going to tell you flat out, at the end of this story, I'm going to reveal how I was wrong. So, I don't know everything, and this is a learning experience, because I was thinking about the types of people who have been calling me out on inappropriate behavior in the past, and 90% of the time, the people that tell other individuals, hey, don't say that, hey, you shouldn't do that, whoa, you're taking that too far, that's not appropriate. The people who say things like that often will wait one week and then they will do the same thing themselves or if somebody is doing something which they deem to be inappropriate when person b is doing that exact same thing they will turn a blind eye to it and jordan peterson talks about a lot about this it's about hierarchies but um another one of my own independent observations is it's also about sensitivity levels that people are more likely to call somebody out if they are going to be sensitive to their um to their words, and they're going to get some type of reaction out of the person. If they're going to say, hey, don't do that, it's inappropriate, and the person doesn't even acknowledge that they're talking, then they probably aren't going to say that again too frequently, or maybe they'll try to say it in a louder way and so on. But the point is, the majority of the time, 90% of the time, when someone has said, don't do that, it's inappropriate, it's not done in a virtuous way. Is that person your friend? is that person, you know, a good person to be around? No, that's arbitrary power tripping, because they do the same things, especially if you're from the same background, or you're in a similar situation. They use the same types of language, or they talk about the same types of subjects. Maybe it just didn't happen at their desired outcome, and then they're just trying to get other people in the workplace to conform to their emotional needs and desires. Or also, they're trying to just two genuine forms of power tripping to have power over people momentary domination now i said there's one point where i was wrong and this relates to just that i was thinking more about examples of friends and even when i was thinking about coworkers i was thinking about friendly exchanges with coworkers where I was wrong was, and I think Robert Sutton might actually be right about this, is this is about workplace jerks, not about having friendly conversations. And if somebody is calling out your behavior as inappropriate or telling you that maybe you shouldn't say that or that you shouldn't do that, that gives you a greater understanding of how the workplace functions. Or it also tells you that if you have to be around these types of coworkers. This is the type of behavior that is acceptable or welcome, and it'll give you greater um, awareness of how the workplace needs to function. And I was talking about this with somebody back in 2014, I think, based on where I was living at the time, and I, I said some of these very same things about everything I did at this one job I had, nobody liked it. Everybody had a problem with me. They had a problem with everything I said. They had a problem with everything that I did. Granted, they did many of the same behaviors themselves. And it was always just somewhat of a mystery to me about why people would tolerate a certain type of behavior or certain types of language or certain types of comments from person A, but they would not accept the exact same thing from person B. And the person that I was discussing this with simply told me, flat out, that you're just not going to get along with every group. Sometimes there's going to be a group of people, and you're just not going to get along with them. I mean, you're just not going to be accepted to them. Not everything is going to mix. And while there's a certain degree of truth to that, I think that um, it's more about what Bob Sutton was talking about. I was doing things that genuinely weren't welcome in the workplace. And if anybody were else were to also do those inappropriate things. I could call them out on that as well, but that's not what I was doing. I was just, I was the person who was expecting everybody to conform to my emotions. And it's a big thing we have to realize in life. Not all people are moral and virtuous and ethical all the time, myself included. And they have this way of going through life when they get mad at somebody for doing something and then they turn around and do the same thing. And it's because they just have this expectation that everybody around them is there to fuel their own emotions. They're there to cater to person A's emotional desires and needs. Every aspect of their personality is just the maximum value of purity and awesomeness and excellence. And everybody else needs to just cater to their maximum value of purity, awesomeness, and excellence. People just need to cater to this person's personality. But that's not the case. We're not perfect. I don't know who you are listening to this right now, but you're not perfect. I'm not perfect. And we often have to deal with these types of interactions. But as far as um, Bob Sutton's comments about this book that he was promoting, as well as he has videos on YouTube, I heard one thing that I genuinely did agree with when he talked about how if someone is trying to get to the top of a hierarchy, they have destroyed it. And you can think about this, about a workplace jerk and so on. If someone is trying to become like the head honcho in the office, or even if they're not fighting for a promotion, but they just want the most privileges and the most responsibilities, they want other people to listen to them, they are going (laughs) to piss off a lot of people. And I um, it was actually at that job that I was just complaining about when we had a workplace jerk, someone who was very very mean, very unfriendly. And one of my coworkers was just, you know, complaining about him one day, and he's like, "Who? Oh yeah, you know that so and so, like he always complains. He always has a problem with everything. And I know that he backs up everything that he says, but he still needs to lighten up." And ever since that conversation, I've noticed that pattern happening in the workplace time and time again. There will be somebody Who's making genuine complaints, and they have reasons why they're calling out other people on their behavior or they're complaining about the boss and they have very good points about how the boss is doing something impractically in an impractical way, but it it drags down the work environment it puts other people down it drags down the morale, so this person might get the most talking time this person might get the most, um, attention. Like, if you're sitting around with your coworkers, this person is going to be exerting their ideas out onto the situation, and it's, it's another form of domination. They might not have the most, um, important title. They might not be the manager. They might not be the, um, director. They might not even be any type of executive. They might have the same position that you do, the same job title that you do, but because they are so loud and bold and so forceful with their emotions and what they're thinking that they gain control of the situation. And in doing so, they've destroyed the hierarchy because they piss off everybody around them. They make everybody around them angry as they're trying to gain control of this. Now, I found that in Bob Sutton's book, to be or the videos, rather, to about his book to be very um, challenging, because somebody even wrote in the comments section about this whole thing, oh, if you want people to like you, get them to do favors for you. Someone almost said, it's like this guy is trying to tell people, kill them with kindness. The kill them with kindness strategy does not work. But, you know, Robert Sutton is the expert, and I'm not. From personal experience, from other people's experiences, we seem to be in agreement. Killing them with kindness does not work. Because Dr. Robert Glover, author of the books No More Mr. Nice Guy and Dating Essentials for Men, perhaps talked about this in a little bit of a clearer way when he said, here's an exercise that you can do for assertiveness training. Three times a day, ask somebody to do something for you that you could do yourself. But that's not about killing people with kindness. And that is not about trying to do anything other than increasing your ability to be assertive. It's about not caring about how other people feel. Because for nice people, like me, then it's very difficult to get into conflict. You want to avoid conflict like the plague. You want to avoid negative emotions like anger and sadness like the plague. So when someone is going to create this type of conflict, that's the whole point. Dr. Robert Glover openly tells you, Ask somebody, hey, make these photocopies for me because it's meant to be awkward. It's about pushing you into that realm of awkwardness or dealing with the uncomfortable feelings that, that might be attached to that and getting used to having people challenge you and so on. But, um, phew, I don't think I'll ever ask anybody to make photocopies for me. I'm not that evil. But yeah, I did start doing that. Um, For a while, I was doing it once a day, not three times a day. I, like many people, often put my own twists on other people's suggestions. That's why they don't always work for me. But the long story short is, becoming more assertive means that other people aren't going to like you. You just don't care about it. And... There's some other things that were mentioned from Bob Sutton about using cognitive behavioral therapy to deal with a workplace jerk. And that is that you can almost reprogram your brain in a way to think that when someone is mean to you, you can turn it into something humorous. When someone is mean to you, you can turn it into something where you are not bothered by it. And um, I mean, I've even talked about other mental exercises, like when you just constantly tell yourself, I have no opinion on this. Tell that to yourself over and over again, and you'll slowly train yourself not to care or not to get um, reactive, like other people's comments will not get a reaction out of you. And that goes exactly back to what I said about sensitivity, that People are going to call out someone's behavior because of sensitivity, because they can see that they're getting a reaction from you. I've been through this on both sides. Like, when one of my coworkers said something like really dehumanizing about a certain demographic of people, and I didn't, I don't even want to repeat it because it's horribly discriminatory, but I was like, hey, that's not true. And he didn't even acknowledge that I was talking, he's just looking in the other direction and It's like I wasn't even in the room. Do you think I ever called him out on something else again? No, because he was so insensitive about it, it's just wasting your oxygen. But if someone has a very intense reaction, Oh, I'm sorry, I, 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 oh, like when they give a reaction like that, then they can see that their words have the ability to control you. Money, sex, and power, right? I call that the true crime trinity of sexual deviance. Yeah, I think that's what I call it. I used to call it that anyway. It's been a long time since I brought that one up. Or the trinity of true crime deviance. Now, let's just keep going with that one. Money, sex, and power, right? Those are the reasons why people commit crimes. But always, what is the most important one in that? Money, sex, or power? Power. Absolutely. And you often find that money and sex are just things that people use to obtain power, or that they are just different aspects of power in, them, in themselves. People want lots of money so that they can have power over other people, and they want sex because it also has the ability to control people people love power. That's why they aren't virtuous with their actions. That's why they want everyone to cater to their emotions or using their emotions as some type of gold standard for the workplace or the friendship. And um, I do have a quick thing to share about friendship, although it is important to remember Bob Son's comments were about the workplace, not about friends, and I think he was right about that. Like, but um, about friendships, I would just want to um share that it is really different looking back in life when you have friends in elementary school, junior high even, and maybe to a certain extent high school, but I think a lot of it ends around the ages of 12 and 13. A friendship is pretty much just a group of people, and one person is more like the class clown or the the group clown, the obnoxious one. And they are the one who is funny. They are the one who is choosing the topics of conversation. They are the one who is doing all the rough humor. And then if someone else is trying to be funny, or if someone else is trying to talk about a different subject, they just don't want to hear it. They're just like, mm, I don't care. They're just like, they want to be the person who has power of this. And this. Jordan Peterson talks a lot about this in his Maps of Meaning course when he says it even goes back to ancient Mesopotamia about how vision and language are what people use to create power. Or, I mean, like, that's what people use to obtain power, vision and language. So by cutting off other people's language and their ability to create, then this person gains power over the group. And you see this very clearly, but that look, that really was the case about how my friendships were until about the age of 13. There were a group of us people who were, you know, similar classes, maybe similar um, similar academic styles and so on. So we were placed together, and we were, of course, mostly boys up, up until that point. And one person in the group was very obnoxious, and then we followed along with his obnoxiousness. If somebody else did it, then they were made fun of and they were put down. And just looking about how silly it was, it's almost even to the point where someone is just telling the same joke over and over again, and you just keep laughing along with it, and why? You're just letting someone else do mean things to you and such. But on that note, this is definitely relevant to the workplace jerks. I was watching the channel Oak Leaves and Onions, which is hosted by somewhat of an anonymous presenter, I don't know her real name, and I've talked about several of her videos, and she said that growing up, if she ever expressed herself, her family immediately cut her down. Now, what does that mean? It's almost like any time she would show passion for anything, then they perhaps would insult her, try to embarrass her, make a mockery of anything, I mean, and yes, I'm connecting some of my own experiences to this because I know exactly what that's like, it's the same thing with the obnoxious friend. like, oh, hey, you're, uh, being funny, hey guys, do you want to hear something funny too, and they'd be like, no, you're a loser, ha ha ha, they're going to try and prevent you from expressing yourself in any way, controlling how other people express themselves is gaining complete control of them, Vision and language, these are what people use to obtain power. You cut off someone else's ability to create, you've cut off their ability to obtain power. And people in the workplace will do this a lot. But I also have one final note to say about workplace jerks on a personal level. They are horribly insecure. And they're also not very prosperous. I would just want you guys to think back on your um, life lessons about workplace jerks. The ones that I've known, who are always in that category of, oh my gosh, they're complaining so much, but they need to lighten up. I mean, yes, they have reasons why they can back up all their points, but they need to lighten up. None of them were very prosperous. And you're wondering, like, you know, I've had numerous co-workers. Well, hey, if you think that the manager is doing everything wrong, why don't you become a manager somewhere else if you could do it better? Oh, you're complaining about the policies here? Why don't you try to get promoted and then you can implement your own policies? No, they just want to complain about other people. And I really wondered that, like, for a long time, I just couldn't understand, like, why you complain about everything, but you don't try to change everything. It's just momentary domination. It's just emotional manipulation. It's just they do gain control of the workplace. Yes, they do destroy the hierarchy in the process. Nobody wants them around. I mean, just being honest and being very frank, nobody likes talking to them. They might put up with them because they don't know how to get rid of them. Or if they do challenge them, then they're going to be um, dealing with a nasty set of problems that they don't want to deal with. But that's the point of assertiveness training, not caring about the nastiness that comes with it. And so on, but that does that will not make you liked and If this coworker doesn't like you, whoops pulling their weight around and throwing their weight around well um there are numerous ways you could do that, but I I don't think asking them to do you favors will make them like you instead um you can ask them to do your favors and get ready for some nasty comebacks that they will throw at you so that's just something that I wanted to share, and I guess the last point um that the unfinished thought is. That a lot of them are horribly insecure, these workplace jerks, because that's the best they're going to be. They could do a lot more if they just overcame their own insecurities and actually tried to be a manager. But then who would would they have to complain about themselves? No, they want to sit in the corner and tell, oh, this guy's doing it wrong. Oh my gosh, he's so incompetent. He doesn't know anything about this company. I've been here for five years. I could shit this company out of my ass. Okay, then why aren't you doing it? Oh, well, if I were the boss and other people would be making fun of me and I wouldn't actually be able to do the job that well because it's harder than I think. Yeah, like they're actually going to say that. So, um, loudmouth, opinionated, uh, workplace jerks don't always make it that far in life. I'm sure some do. I'm sure there are some exceptions, but not the ones that I've encountered. Thank you for listening to this episode, talking a little bit about the Zodiac Killer, a little bit about Michael O'Hare and his responses to um, Gareth Penn and in Time 17, although I really wish Michael O'Hare had weighed in on Ray Grant's comments so I could have responded to that yesterday, but I've shared everything that he has said about Ray Grant, and um, that was didn't go as far as I wanted. But thank you for also listening to the discussion on Robert Sutton, and his books, Um, as I said, he has numerous ones, The Asshole Survival Guide, as well as The No Asshole Rule, Good Boss, Bad Boss, Um, if you'd like to look at any of his things on YouTube, he has videos as well, and... Also, just sharing on some personal experiences, as far as assertiveness training go, I highly recommend uh, No More Mr. Nice Guy by Dr. Robert Glover. Oak Leaves and Onions, that YouTube channel I was talking about, has a book discussion on No More Mr. Nice Guy. Also, the channel Barehanded Enterprises, hosted by Bulent Gherkin, is uh, good for assertiveness training and life coaching, all of those things. Barehanded Enterprises, available on YouTube. And if you would like to download the audio of this program, you can do it for free at Launchpad1. You can always visit the Teespring page, get a copy of the book Killer on a White Horse from Amazon.com. And thank you just for listening to this. I'll see you guys next time. Or I'll listen to you guys next time. Do I see you or I hear you? Well, I'll definitely see you on those those, uh, weekend debunking segments that I do about the Zodiac Killer. You'll see me anyway. I will talk to you in the future. Let's just say that future events such as these will affect you in the future. Until next time.